Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkulam, and I'm here to help Paul recollect and expand upon the big stories of the week. That is, the big stories of the past week, the last week of July 2021. This podcast covers the stories as they have appeared on thisiscommonsense.org, the website that Paul has been producing since 1999. So, Paul, what have been the big stories this last week? <laughs> this week? This week. News what? story. Was there news? You know, I, I, I'm I, not even sure I could, this today especially, but pretty much the whole week has just gone by with such a blur. I, I think that it's 2021. We're in like the, the middle of the summer, kind of getting to the dog days. Um, the president was on talking about masks and so on. Uh, so that people who were vaccinated uh, have now been kind of given the old twist that, uh, yeah, you don't have to wear masks. Well, actually you do. Um, and we'll see how it all plays out. Uh, we had one script this week, not about the United States, but about Australia, uh, which really in a sense, and maybe we should deal with that first, um, lockdowns down under uh, at thisiscommonsense.org. I think it's sometimes helpful for people to think about how other countries are dealing with this because, you know, we're so quick to it's this side of the political spectrum's fault or it's that side of the political spectrum's fault. And, and, you know, America's so divided and so on, even though I have a feeling that if we pulled all these divided people into a room where there weren't, you know, agitators, that there'd be all kinds of agreement and even maybe respect for the, what the other person wanted to do. Um, but, uh, I think in Australia, this this particular piece is about their lockdowns. You know the the Delta variant, and I, I have to just take a little aside. This Delta variant is constantly I'm reading and hearing is more virulent than others, more deadly, easier to to spread. And then I saw something just the other day that said it may be easier to spread or more virulent. And so it's, it always seems to me like we ought to know that before we say it. That's just a crazy little, you know, nitpicky thing I have, but that before we say this is more deadly and it's going to kill everyone, that we would actually have some rationale for that. In fact, we might even say, here's how much more virulent it is. Here's, here's what we think it's going to do. But um, this, this whole pandemic, of course, we have to kind of understand that we hadn't been through it before. And it's, it's why uh, one, of, one of my big concerns with the vaccine um, is, and, and whether to get it, is that I've had COVID. And so I have natural antibodies. And I've heard so much different stuff. And I don't mean just hearsay, but, but reading different studies and different expert doctors who are virologists and know all kinds of stuff and they're not on the same page. And I hear that the natural antibodies are gonna last longer or just as long. Uh, I've heard that the natural antibodies aren't gonna be able to handle this, this variant. But of course, is the vaccine gonna be able to handle it? And, and we don't know either one really, do we? Because we haven't been through it yet. <laughs> so 
all of this is to say that I think uh, the 98% of people on Facebook who are slamming someone else because they didn't get vaccinated or they did get vaccinated, I'm, I may start uh, looking at vaccination like I look at voting, which is just very forgiving. And the reason I'm so forgiving on how people vote is because it's a crapshoot and you're, you're trying to figure out who's gonna screw you less, who's gonna ruin the country a little bit less. And, and so, you know, hey, this is your most important issue. I see why you might want that guy instead of that guy or this gal or whatever. And the same's true for other elections. We're trying our, it's not like we live in a perfect world where if you choose just right, everything happens wonderfully and our country is secure and at peace and wealthy and wise. Um, we're choosing between people like Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And that's, you know, I don't know how you pick a great president. Um, and, and I've had, I think, I think Trump's done some really good, did some really good things when he was in. Biden may do some good things, but I just don't see them as this is, you know, this is who we want if we could pick from everybody. And of course, Trump, Clinton, uh, that may be worse than Trump Biden. Uh, it's certainly not, not any better. So, um, so I'm very forgiving. And the same thing is true with vaccination. I mean, I know some people have science right here on their shoulder in their back pocket or up here, they've got it all. But, you know, if tomorrow people start dropping like flies from the vaccine, what, what are they going to say? Um, we, just like we knew that it was just a ridiculous, stupid conspiracy theory that uh, to even look at the stupid lab leak from Wuhan, that's a bunch of yahoos who are making up conspiracy theories. And that holds the day pretty much for about a year, a little bit more than a year before all of a sudden Facebook decides, oh, we're not going to censor your posts anymore about that. And the president of the United States, not Trump, but Biden says, oh, well, we're going to look into that more because we have intelligence reports that suggest it could be that. And of course, all of this now, you got people arguing it was, it wasn't. We don't have tremendous evidence that it was. And I keep hearing from people that we have all kinds of evidence that it's, it's uh, zoonotically transmitted except they have no evidence. They have none. When someone says, I think it's zoonotically, probably zoonotically uh, transmitted, they are almost invariably relying on the fact that other viruses were done that way. And that's like not knowing who just walked by, but knowing that usually the person who walks by is wearing blue and saying, I have evidence that the person who walked by that I did not see was wearing blue. You don't have a shred of evidence that the person who walked by that you didn't see is wearing blue, not one shred of evidence. Now, you may have reason to suspect and to even believe if you have to make some life decision on it, well, then I might even be with you saying, let's just bank on it being blue. But we don't have one scintilla of evidence. And that's what they've done with the zoonotic, the animal, this came from animals. Well, it did in the past, it must this time. Well, the fact that it did it in the past is not evidence 
you know, that that this guy uh, hit a home run last night. So I don't know what he did at bat just a minute ago, but it must have been a home run. Right. You know, that's that's not evidence. That is what would it be correlation, propensity, all kinds of things. And it's worth paying attention to, but it's not evidence. And and so when it when it comes to vaccination, um, we need freedom. The moment you start forcing people, you give up the moral authority. You're no longer persuading. You have a, a complete handle on all truth and you're gonna force it down somebody's throat. And, and the point we make in the script is really not about the, the virus or vaccination. It's about constitutional rights. That's the real point we're making in this script. Uh, because the difference between the United States and, and uh, uh, J.D. Ticelli, uh, did I get his name even close to right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, every once in a while. Um, no, his father is a, was a famous uh, business writer. And what was his father's name? Isn't it Jerome? Jerome? Yeah, Jerome. He, he wrote one of the yeah. funniest books I've ever read, and, uh, which was it usually begins with Ayn Rand. And uh, yes, but he also wrote some important books about business leaders and politicians, and those are worth looking at as well. Well, at reason, uh, he writes about what's going on in Australia, but he points out that there's a big difference between Australia and the United States. And that difference is that Australia doesn't have a constitution. It's not a constitutional republic with certain rights written in to be guaranteed. And he quotes uh, John Howard, who was a past uh, prime minister. And Howard's basically making the point that, in essence, rights are anti-democratic and that rights hurt the people, don't help the people. And it, you know, I mean, I think for a lot of people, if you're short on time, just go, well, that's complete crap. (laughs) and you move on. But we're going to drill down on it just a little bit because um, his first argument is that that basically because we have courts, the majority um, uh, rule is thrown away. And, And of course, he has a point. The reason we have a Bill of Rights is because we want to be able to speak freely even if 51% of the people in our town vote and say that we can't, um, we want the minority, whether they are a racial minority or their sexual orientation is a minority or their taste in coffee is a minority. We want them all to be able to live their lives. We're not trying to decide truth in everything, whether it's speech or whether it's what detergent you ought to buy. We're going to have choices. People can do their own thing. And, uh, and so this idea that somehow we don't really have democracy unless people are able to vote and whatever they vote happens without any regard to some higher law that says, oh, no matter what, how we decide to pick up the garbage or, or pave the streets, you can't take away somebody's property without due process. You can't shut somebody up because they have a right to speak. You can't invade their home without a warrant. 
you, there's all kinds of these things that the majority could vote tomorrow to change. And it's too bad because there's, there's a judicial system. And is it anti-democratic? It is anti-democratic if you are to say that democracy is where the majority rules and we vote on everything. And, and so I, if someone says, well, that's how democracy works, okay, I, 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 why, why argue about it? But then we need another name because there are not more than a, a handful or two of lunatics around the world who think, who like democracy, but think there should be no limits. There should be no, you know, protections for somebody against 51% of the people voting that we get to take all your stuff and that you're banished, you know, to, to exile or imprisoned because we didn't like what you said. Um, so these, and, and his, his, he goes into some detail to kind of suggest that, um, you know, that, that, that somehow in courts, uh, you know, you're, you, the, what, what good are these constitutional rights going to do? Well, if you're in court, as we point out, and you don't have any constitutional rights, I mean, why, why would you not just do whatever the policeman said? Because the policeman can do almost anything he wants to you. And any, any speaker of the house or prime minister or president or anything else, there's nothing to block them. And, and some people might argue, well, hey, we have a constitution and our government ignores it all the time. And you're right. I, I think they do. I mean, they can argue the interpretation, but I'm, I'm with you. They do. They ignore the constitution. How ripping up that constitution and saying it doesn't count for anything helps us. I don't know. Because the fact that we can say, hey, you're ignoring this constitution is based on almost everyone's solid understanding that we have a little bit of a contract. And unfortunately, it wasn't all signed by everybody. And Lysander Spooner would point out all the ways that this is not really a contract. But to the degree it holds our government accountable, they're the ones who are holding the document and everything. And so any individual who's born tomorrow can say, hey, I never signed into this. And they've got an argument. But the government created by it has no argument not to abide by it. And so it gives us something. If, if it's only something to argue about, it's better than nothing. And of course, in the real world, it has helped us again and again and again. Policemen are not as apt. And we've got police that we have all kinds of problems with. But they're not as apt to uh, beat somebody up because that person has rights. And a lawyer can then go to court and they could sue the police department and they could sue the, the state. Well, if you've got no rights, what are you suing over? And, and so I love constitutional rights. Now, I recognize that just because it says it on a piece of paper doesn't mean it's reality unless it lives seriously in our hearts and in our minds and in our conversations and reality with each other. If, if it doesn't live there, then, you know, we got no hope that some judge is going to dust it off and go, oh, wait a second, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Virgula, Virgula you, can, you can leave freely because it says right here on page 37, I didn't even know it. Um, the truth is the government's going to ignore it all if we allow them to ignore it. But the difference between a society that has these protections and doesn't is night and day. And, uh, and don't 
don't let the failures of a good system, of a better system, make you think that it's all the same. I, I, I find myself arguing way too much with people um, on Facebook or, or wherever uh, about, you know, uh, uh, China. Oh, well, it's really just the same. I had someone who told me this week that, that I know the Chinese surveillance state is, is you know, vast and, you know, and of course, then they use that surveillance state to arrest anybody who says anything against the government. But so are there a lot of cameras in the United States of America. In any major city, there's cameras all over the place. Well, I have, I have some qualms with cameras all over the place. But if they're on private property, um, or they have maybe some reason to put them on government property, uh, and they've done so lawfully, you know, it's a little bit different. Because the other thing is, I don't know of anybody being arrested because they caught him on camera with a sign that said down with Joe Biden or to hell with Donald Trump or, or whatever. And so to make, to kind of compare those two and act like there's no difference between the place where there's a bunch of cameras, but nobody can throw you into the gulag for no reason because you said something the government doesn't like and a place where they have cameras all over the place Government can cameras controlled by the government. If you say or do anything they don't like, they're going to put you in prison. Those are two very different things, and uh, and and so and of course the difference between America and Australia is not that big a difference. It is amazing uh, that some countries without constitutions, but where there is that spirit, that sense that people do have intrinsic freedom that must be respected, it's amazing how well they have done. But why not write it down? I mean, the same thing happened in America. There was an argue, argument against the Bill of Rights. And the argument was, hey, if we write them down, they might think that's all we've got. And that's why they, that's why they put the Ninth Amendment in that says that any freedoms not mentioned are still reserved to the people. Of course, that's also why our government has largely forgotten the Ninth Amendment. I guess it was, who is it, Randy Barnett? Is that who wrote The Forgotten Nine? I don't know that, actually. I'm it may be. If it's not, uh, I apologize to whoever did. And if it is, uh, Randy Barnett, thank you very much for writing it. Um, but but anyway, so, so I think that uh, as much as everyone wants to fixate on, oh, my God, we have to do this. Let's not pay attention. The whole point of this piece is to say there is a way to deal with crisis, with pandemics, with war, with revolution, with every bad thing under the sun. But that way is not to throw out all individual rights and freedom and embrace the totalitarian state. That seems to me just a little bit of an overreaction. And you haven't here discussed your second, the second point that Howard made, uh, and that's the a previous uh, prime minister of uh, Australia, uh, not the current one who's causing a, a big ruckus and lots of protests, by the way. I was kind of interested to see that they, lots of people in Sydney were taking to the streets. Not like in America, which it's not, there's not a lot of a revolt. Uh, anyway, uh, but- no, I, I think part of that is, Maybe in, in Australia, when they protest, they cover it. 
Whereas I think the sort of coverage that most of the media would give to any protest against a lockdown in America would be these are all evil, terrible people protesting. Uh, and and I, I think, you know, uh, that may have some aspect uh, of it. The other interesting thing about this is how much protests have rocked Europe and other places in the world and how seemingly little coverage that gets in the United States of America. And I think that it's, it's harder to demonize folks in our country who have the other, you know, who are, who don't want the lockdowns and don't want the mass mandates. And, um, and, you know, so it's, it's easy to demonize them if, and harder if you see all over the world, you've got people who are having the same response. This is not a bizarre response. People don't like to be locked up or locked down. Neither of those is a phrase where people go, you know what I've been wanting all day is to just be locked down or locked up. Locked is not, is not something that, that goes with freedom. Uh, or goes with happiness. Oh, I was really miserable, and then I got locked up, and boy, then I was happy. So, so come on, this is uh, uh, we we need, and this has nothing to do with the script necessarily, but we need to have some respect for our fellow men and women. And you know, there are going to be some people who the threat of COVID is minuscule compared to the threat of mental illness, the threat of all kinds of, and it may, may not be your own, it may be a loved one's. Uh, you know, we've had all kinds of problems from this, you know, lockdown society and, uh, and they need to be recognized. And, and in a free society, the government gets to control its, its part of things and the private sector gets to control its part of things and individuals on their property get to control their part of things. And of course, there's some rules. You can't, you know, you can't set off a nuclear bomb on your property. And, and they even get uh, more, more down to the nitty gritty than that. But uh, no one's arguing against that. There seems to be this carte blanche of it's a, it, someone's going to die. Well, people die every day, there are diseases every day, but somehow just we have to get to a panic so that in that panic, we can say, you have all the power. And we renounce this idea of a society that is pluralistic and where individuals have say so and where there are different people doing different things. It's, uh, it's very scary. And of course, Tim, I've, uh, you, you, know, you gave me the heads up that, hey, you, you missed this whole other one and I'm continuing to miss it. But it deserves to be missed. And the other argument, that the, John, the other, other point he made was so dumb that it's not worth talking about. That's right. <laughs> because his other argument was that to have these rights listed in the Constitution without responsibilities listed in the Constitution is is somehow just sends the wrong message. And you know, look, people do have responsibilities, and we all kind of recognize that but we have no need to codify those responsibilities unless you're saying that everyone must do exactly that. I think people have a lot of responsibilities. I think that when people get married and take a vow to each other, that they're responsible to carry that out. Now I'm not looking for 
people to come in and, and enforce that responsibility. So if you're talking about responsibilities, Mr. John Howard, I'm just going to call him John Major. Um, I think there was another, uh, uh, that wasn't British. I think John Major was another Australian uh, prime minister, maybe. Anyway, there was a John Major. Major was the, the prime minister of Britain right after uh, Thatcher. Okay. All right. So it wasn't Australia. They all look the same. I mean, come on. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, I think if you are going to assert that there's responsibilities, you better spell them out. And I would say as a citizen, if I were a citizen of Australia, let's list out our rights because we have to put those down so you guys don't trample on them. Otherwise, you might say, oh, we didn't know. Uh, and then if you want to list out the responsibilities, then you do that. And we'll see if we agree. Because the whole point of constitutions is to bind the government. Throughout all of human history, governments have had very little trouble binding individuals because they get a bunch of people. And in the old days, maybe they had clubs and they would club you and kill you. And so you, you didn't want to die. And then they got it to where maybe they had spears or they had, and, and, and now they've got guns and they still have gloves actually. And, and so the state has never had much difficulty getting people to heal. Now there are revolutions, thank goodness, uh, almost always for a good reason and uh, not always carried out in the right way or leading to a good result, but almost always for good reason. But we do have trouble holding government to account. And that's why it's got to be written in the Constitution. When we talk about citizens' rights, we're usually talking about government responsibilities. And he's worried about citizen responsibilities and, and apparently government rights. But really, all those government rights in this case would just simply be other citizens' rights. Uh, you know, my right to liberty means that you don't that you're obliged and re you're responsible not to whack me over the head or enslave me. And so a lot of this, like you say, and as you said, this is kind of a dumb argument on his part. It's just it's kind of it's it's and it's something very conservatives often get wrong. This is this is what conservatives like a, it's got like a three second appeal, you know, yeah. while you go, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, it's not really meaningful. Well, that pretty much covers Australia, other than the fact that uh, they're going into lockdowns again. Well, speaking of, of lockdowns, uh, perhaps the queen of lockdowns in the United States of America is uh, Gretchen uh, Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. We know from past things that we've talked about and, and written about that Governor Whitmer has been huge on let's close everything down and has also been a little bit weird about it. Like <laughs> you couldn't buy gardening supplies. You could canoe out into the lake, but you couldn't take your party barge into the lake. You could, it was, it, it seemed like she had like some weird climate change agenda in part, or just, I don't like this industry. I like this industry, you know, everybody, Everybody can go liquor up, but you can't go to church, um, you know, and just and and of course, I look at all of these and I think. Isn't the proper role for government that doesn't own us, we kind of own it 
Isn't if you've got somebody who has all this apparatus to look at the science of this, I want the information. I want the report. I want all of the information and I want it stated as fully and clearly as possible. And then we will decide. And obviously there are some things that, you know, there's a flesh eating virus that will kill all of humanity. You, you know, people at that point, I think are going to be pretty willing to go, you know what? I think I won't take you to court. Which way do I need to run? But this idea that they can just dictate everything and with silly consequences and picking winners and losers, this person can open up, but this person can't open up. And so there was a lot of resistance, more in Michigan than almost anywhere. And because that's where I think the governor really seemed to have a political edge to her lockdown orders. And then, of course, that she was taken to court and the court ruled against her. And as we wrote about, her AG said she was going to continue to enforce some of these things. And now, with the court having ruled that way, the people of Michigan decided we're not necessarily safe because, of course, she could decide, okay, I'm going to do these new things. Oh, they're unconstitutional? Well, I don't think so. I guess you need to take me to court again, and that will take another six months or 12 months. And I I deal with this all the time on initiative and referendum stuff. Legislatures pass. Arkansas did it this year. Uh, Florida did it too. The the federal courts already struck it down, thank goodness. And hopefully soon they'll strike down the ridiculous stuff Arkansas did. But they passed just obviously unconstitutional laws, figuring that, first of all, we know now that we've stopped all the poor people because they don't have the the wherewithal to sue in federal court. Um, And unless you can find a pro bono attorney, and I've found more than more than one in, in my life. And boy, it's always been very good. But, but it's very difficult to overcome these unconstitutional restrictions. And legislators think that their job is to violate our rights and then see if, if we can get out from under the violations. That is just beyond despicable. And so that could happen again in Michigan on this and on, on other issues. And so the people of Michigan, a group called Unlock Michigan, did a, refer- a referendum, not really a referendum technically, and, and all my initiative referendum friends are going, Paul, how can you screw up and say the wrong definition? You know, I, I'm, I'm a man of the people. I get things wrong. Yeah, what do you call it when the people put a petition up and then the legislature says yes and enacts it? What is that called? It's an indirect initiative. And just to quickly do a definition, initiative is where the people initiate the law. If the legislature puts something on the law, that would be a referral. And when it's voted on, you could call it a referendum, but usually I would call it a statewide referral vote or something. If, um, if the people refer something the legislature passed, in other words, they pass something, public doesn't like it, or at least a good slice of them, they petition it onto the ballot, that's a referendum. And that's a referendum from day one, then when it goes on the ballot, how do you vote on the referendum? Now, oftentimes, once something's on the ballot, the media and other people are calling it a referendum. And it's not that difficult to figure out what they're saying. But just technically, what Michigan has is both an initiative constitutional amendment process and a statutory indirect initiative process. So if you're proposing a constitutional amendment, you collect more signatures and it goes to the ballot. 
if you're doing a statute, it's fewer signatures, but then it goes to the legislature. And if the legislature passes it, it becomes law. If the legislature doesn't pass it, it goes to the ballot and the voters can decide whether it's law or not. Now, there are seven states that have this indirect process. In four of those states, if the legislature passes it after signatures have been collected, the governor can still veto it. In most of the initiative, constitutional amendments and so on, the governor has no role. But on a statutory initiative in four of the seven states, the governor can veto it. In the other three states, Michigan being one of them, and the other two are Utah and Washington, the governor has no role. So once the legislature votes up whatever you know initiative you've done, it becomes law. So in Michigan, they got the signatures, and it's a Republican legislature that certainly more you know had already tried to do some things to to block what Whitmer was doing. And of course, she could veto them. And it's a close enough split in the legislature, although Republicans control both houses, that the governor could pretty much dictate. So this was a way to end run the governor. And it was very successful. Um, I tend to think it would have passed had it been on the ballot. But of course, you never know until you put it up on the ballot. The fight against Whitmer isn't over, but this was, was a win. It was a big win. And this was a win also because it was smart in my, in my estimation, because even though they won a court victory against what she was doing largely, I think they were still right to be worried that she could finagle some new things and they just wanted to get rid of it altogether. And, you know, if there's an emergency, I know that legislatures didn't want to meet with COVID. Look, I can understand that. But, you know, these are really important jobs. And I think if, if something needs to happen in our government, we can't just go, well, you know, it's really rainy outside. Oh, it's so cold. Well, if it's too cold or there's a flu bug going around or there's a pandemic or there's a war, do we just get rid of the Constitution, and then, then you know, some Secretary of State can make the decision. Some medical chief medical officer in the state, the governor, and so I think we need to look all across the country at some of these emergency procedures. And the goal not being to tie everyone's hands. There are times where you want their hands to be untied, but you want accountability. There's nothing that suggests that you can't have the ability for government to respond without it being accountable. And so much of what happened, I think, during the pandemic so far has been government officials making broad orders that they have no right to make. And that's why a lot of times people, oh, they should arrest all these people. None of these arrests are going are gonna to hold up in court because you don't have any right to tell the person what you're telling them to do in the first place in, in a lot of cases. Yeah, and I understand that there is another executive or there's another legal venue that Whitmer can do to do emergency orders. So they just really repealed one as one of the two that she was using. Right, that's right. And it is very complicated. I don't think we need to talk about the complications here. 
No, but uh, here's, here's, I think, a, a simpler issue uh, that we dealt with today. It was our Friday commentary that, of course, not everybody saw it as so simple because we have to protect people even against themselves. The title of the commentary is First Fire All the free Freelancers. I almost said freeloaders. They're definitely not freeloaders. They're freelancers and they're working their butt off. But we had the situation, we've written about it and talked about it on the podcast. And of course, as regular listeners know, we do this podcast every every Saturday is the audio of it. Every Sunday is the uh, video of it. And we discuss the five commentaries that we do through the week. We also do a, a quote every day and a today in history about what, what happened that's relevant to people who love freedom on that day. But we discussed the five commentaries and we have talked quite a bit about uh, what was AB5 in California because it was this sweeping thing that basically made it to where companies had to treat freelancers like they were employees, which meant they weren't freelancers which meant that those companies were going to demand all kinds of things from them that might be the very reason they chose to be freelancers instead of working for that company because they didn't want to be at beck and call of that company all the time. It's viewed by a lot of people who think that any business should immediately be slapped around and forced to give extra benefits to people. Now, they're not willing to start businesses and give benefits to people, but they think other people who do ought to be just dictated by whatever mob they happen to like at the moment. And so their whole thing is they love everybody and they care so deeply that they want to pass legislation to help these people who are begging them to stop passing this legislation to help them. Because someone posted on the, the Facebook today on this and said, you know, because someone was making the argument, this is just trying to stop it to where people don't have to beg for their job every day. As if being a freelancer is to beg for your job every day. And it's almost as if these people somehow have always secretly wanted to be a nine to five employee and somehow they couldn't do it. So they chose freelancing. And now the great, you know, leftist group is going to, is going to somehow award them real employment. And the truth is, freelancers often want to have the freedom that comes from it. And sometimes they make more money freelancing than they would make sitting at a job doing the same things. And so anyway, a, a, a person who I happen to know commented on the script today saying to this person, I don't want a nine to five job. I don't want these things you're trying to give me and you're screwing up my ability to live my life the way I want to live it. And the reason we're talking about this is AB5 in California is in court over several different things. There was a referendum because it was primarily aimed to screw up Lyft and, uh, and Uber because these people somehow need to be full-time employees when, you know, I, I take Uber, I think I've taken Lyft a couple of times, but I've taken Uber numerous times and I talk to the people and, you know, they like having a job that they can determine their own hours, that they have a certain amount of freedom. Almost all of them are busy people who are doing other things, going to school, taking care of kids, working another job, and they don't need the help. It also justifies having a car. It allows them to sort of capitalize on 
what would normally be considered and certainly the IRS considers a personal expenditure and all of a sudden it becomes a capital good. And so behind all this is some really interesting politics. You saw in, in places like New York, you know, the taxi cab people going crazy because here they have to spend, what, $250,000 to get a medallion for each cab? And then Lyft and, and Uber, they hiring somebody, they're taking their car out there. And people, well, that's not fair. Well, it's not fair. So take the $250,000 medallion charge off of these taxi cab companies. That's the real impetus behind that one, is that the medallion system in, in the cities and counties across America, that's always been a regulatory scam. And Uber and Lyft proved it. And that yeah. really must have annoyed politicians, something fierce. I mean, especially Democratic politicians. Because remember, Democratic Party was the machine party of many cities throughout the United States that ran these taxicab medallion systems. Right. That gave you the ability to compete in the marketplace when you stood in their line and waited like you were supposed to. And then they bestowed upon you the ability to go make money. And somebody took this ridiculous middleman out. Yeah. And thank goodness they did. Now, somebody out there might say, well, you think that, Paul. But, you know, it was on the ballot in very liberal California. And in very liberal California, the voters voted to get rid of AB5 for Uber and Lyft. This isn't some Trump bastion, some right wing state. This is California. They don't want the liberal big government elite going back to a system of privilege. And that's what it is. You pay for the privilege to drive a cab. You don't have a right to drive a cab. And in essence, that's what, what Uber and Lyft showed. And I happen to believe you have a right to drive a cab as long as you don't drive over anybody. Anyway, now the uh, Democratic Congress is uh, itching to get in on the act. Is that right? That's exactly right. It, it is something that it's like no bad idea can ever stop one place. It has to spread like wildfire. So it's in California. It has worked so well that the voters voted to stop it in two critical instances. It's in court again and again. It's screwing people up to where some freelancers are leaving California, as other people are. Um, and so what do the Democrats decide to do? Let's spread this nationwide. So there's no escape hatch. There's no way unless you want to, you know, move to Canada. Um, and then who knows, they may take over Canada and do the same thing. Um, but it's, it is designed to just cripple a whole bunch, millions of people who want the freedom to make money without being an employee of, of a company. And of course, it's always, it's always kind of imagined that it's huge companies that do this, that are using these freelancers and so on. But it's largely smaller companies that are doing it. I mean, the huge company is going to have no problem saying, okay, you know, we've got... 2,000 employees across the country. If we have to hire five more, I think we'll be all right. It's the small place that making these five people employees, which may push us to where we need to have a whole health plan and this or that. And look, health plans, all these things are wonderful. 
But if your argument is let's do it because it's good for people, well, then let's make everyone a billionaire. Nobody works anymore. Everyone's a billion. We print out all the money and then we go to the store to get stuff. Only problem is no one's going to be working at the store. They're all going to be standing next to you going, I got a billion dollars. What am I going to do with it? And, and then what do you, who knows? Maybe a market economy will break out. Well, you just lumbed into a subject you didn't cover this week, which is Biden's great explanation of how uh, uh, printing out trillions of dollars is going to uh, decrease inflation. Uh, he says decrease. I think he said it three times, decrease inflation. He insisted that his inflationary monetary policy was going to lead to uh, more investments by the people. And therefore, it, it may be the stupidest thing he's said this whole time that we could understand. When he's saying investment, he is saying, I'm making an investment with the American people's money in my reelection. Because the more money I can throw at people, the more they're going to go, well, I don't know, this Biden's a pretty good guy. I keep getting checks. But we do need to deal with that. And of course, if you look at everything from Republican versus Democrat, I must choose and always agree with the Republicans or always agree with the Democrats. And if the Republicans are wrong about anything, it means the Democrats are right or vice versa. Well, then this is we have a, a system custom made for you because that's the way Washington works. But the reality is Democrats are going to say in the media, you know, if you read the Washington Post and the New York Times, there's always kind of this this disdain that Republicans are talking about fiscal matters because they're right. The Republicans didn't give a hoot about fiscal matters when they're in charge of printing the checks and handing out the dough. Politicians regardless of what they say in their speeches, always seem to want to be the guy with the dough who gets to hand it out to other people. I think there may be some under the table stuff that they're getting back or something. I don't know. That has been kind of the argument. Don't give the Democrats a hard time for spending like maniacs and just printing up all kinds of new money that they get to go spend and that they get to send to you because the Republicans are hypocrites. Well, the Republicans are hypocrites and the Democrats are hypocrites and they're both crooked and they're stealing all our money and they're not content with that. They also want to destroy our entire monetary system and the value of the dollar. You know, I don't claim to be an expert. Tim, you're much, much more learned on economics. I, I don't consider myself any sort of economic expert, but it doesn't seem like there's any way to get around that if you create a bunch of new money and pump it all over the economy, and if things that used to, you know, you used to sell out in a week, you sell out in a day because there's all this money out there and everybody's chasing this good, how that's not going to raise the price of that good, it's, it just doesn't make any sense. And so this is not like, oh, you really need to know a tremendous amount of economic theory. And unless you've done all those graphs with all the lines and so on, and you know, and you know what M1 and M2 is, and you don't have to know any of that. You just have to know that you can't just make up money out of whole cloth and start spreading it around without it having an impact. And so that's that's my layman. Don't be completely ignorant of how money works explanation. But do you want to you want to give people a, a a better one? Oh, I think it suffices really for now. <laughs> it, it does. I mean, that that's one of those issues. 
you know, I've read a lot of economists who defend deficit spending, uh, you know, continual deficit spending with the debt accumulation, the most famous one being Paul Krugman. Now, he does this mainly in the pages of the New York Times, not in his economics writings. Uh, and they're very different kinds of writings generally. But I don't even see how he can believe what he writes. To me, this is crackpot. This is, this is, this is crackpot theory. And, but people want to believe it because if you don't believe it, then you have a problem. What about all that debt accumulation and when and how does it get paid? How are we paying for it now? And we are paying for it in various ways, you know, lack of economic growth and so forth. But also, who's benefiting at whose expense? That's another question that needs to be always talked about. They're the same kind of people, the people, these crackpot monetary theorists, are the same kind of people who talk about growing inequality. And I think they, have, they do have a point in there somewhere. One of the growth of inequality sectors is the growth of the financial sector at the expense of the, the normal productive yes. sector. Yes. And that doesn't get talked about enough. And of course, if you destroy the value of the dollar, those of us who are not so rich, who when we're calculating our retirement, we're, you know, we've, we've got some money, maybe, <laughs> but we're, we're counting what Social Security is going to provide because that's a part of it. And maybe it's a big part, maybe it's a middle part, it's a third, it's half, it's whatever. But if they pay out everything they promised to pay, but they so destroy the dollar that it's worth half of what it was before, or a third, or a fifth, or a tenth, or a, a hundredth, well, now we can be impoverished. Now, do you think they're going to do that to the billionaire? Do you think the billionaire isn't able to separate his assets and maybe buy a little gold and maybe a little Bitcoin and a little of this and a little of that? And he's got some real estate and the destruction of the dollar is not going to cripple the wealthier people. And I don't want it to cripple anyone. So I, I don't blame them for being smart and trying to think, how can I stop myself by being crippled by that stupid politician who I maybe got sucked into giving a contribution to? I'm not trying to blame them. Of course, that's what I'm trying to do too. But I just notice I don't have the same ability to do it because I don't have full-time accountants and, and financial experts and most Americans don't. And because when I look at my retirement, social security, which I've kind of never thought I'd get. And that's why I've you know had, had other things, but it is a nice little leg of that stool. And yet, the government could kick that leg out overnight. And the other thing they can do is all those stocks, you know, stocks are going great. I've uh, in, in later years, I've had a, a 401k, which is wonderful. Almost all my, you know, twenties and thirties and into my forties, I did not. And, uh, and I wish I would have, um, but the, they're doing great right now because, of course, the market's taken off. And really, since 2008, we have been in a situation in which easy for the government to borrow money, easy for anybody to borrow money, very low interest rates. You can't get any interest on the money you have if you're wanting it to go to work for you. Um, and so everybody's putting their money in the stock market and the stock market is overheated. The question is just when there's some sort of bust. But for, you know, if there's a bust in the stock market and there's wild inflation 
and social security is destroyed. Look, most of the people you see on TV are going to be hurt about that much or that much. But most of the people who I think are listening to this podcast are going to be devastated, devastated. And, and what is that going to create? It's going to create economic inequality. And you know what? I don't give a damn about the economic inequality. I'm not, look, if I'm happy, I'm not sad that someone has six times as much happiness somewhere or whatever they've got. Let them ride on the, you know, fly to the French Riviera and sip a thousand dollar champagne. Doesn't hurt me any. And I'm happy for them. If that's what they like, great. But so the inequality, anyone who's focused on that, I think is either not very smart or has got some kind of weird thing they need to go to, you know, a therapist and, and solve that. Um, but the, the whole point is we're going to be impoverished. This is a nation of pretty wealthy people. Our poor people are wealthy. I looked at something the other day about, uh, you know, the, the, are you in the world's middle class? And it was like almost everybody in America's in the world's middle class. Our poor people are in the world's middle class. And, and uh, so, and that also gives us a certain amount of ability to push back on our government. We're not just helpless, hapless folks going, please, sir, give me some more. We've got our own wherewithal. We know things. We've studied. We can make things. Not me, but some people can. And, and look, we're not nobodies. But, but impoverish us. Take our bank accounts and burn all that money. And, and take us when we're 70-something years old and expected that we were going to have all this money and it's all gone. And now we're easier to push around, aren't we? So it, this, that issue, we've got, to, we've got to deal with it more. And it's tough to deal with it because there's no hook. <clears throat> you know, the reality of when you're writing stuff, you know, Tim and I, this isn't the only thing we ever do. And you're looking for stories and hooks and, and how does this uh, affect people? Nobody's writing anything about the fact that we were already, what, 20, I don't even know how many trillion dollars we're in debt. Because you look this morning, it's going to be a couple trillion more tonight. You know, it's, it's like it's so fast. We're spending, they're talking about spending an extra five, seven trillion dollars when we're already deficit spending by a trillion or more. We were deficit spending by a trillion dollars before the pandemic. So that's a, it's a super important issue. And, um, and I don't, you know, I, I wish that I were able to, uh, to better protect myself, but I think, I think, you know, we, it makes sense to put a little protection into what we're doing politically. And that means electing people who might stop this at some day, because people have not felt the pain of this debt load because of course the, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. government's still able to borrow money. And so they just keep financing. It's, it's like, well, I'm not worried about debt because my wife has more credit cards. I'm, I say that. My wife does most of the shopping. She's, she's actually probably better with, with not overspending on the credit cards than I am. So um, no, no aspersions cast there. I'm just saying, um, if you think you're not out of money because you still have checks, 
It's, it's that sort of thing. And, and once, if we were paying the interest charges that were there in the late 70s, all of a sudden, there would be a monstrous hole. I mean, there's already a hole. There's already a trillion plus dollar hole before we spend all the extra. But that's with the interest payments on our debt at the tiniest they've just about ever been. And they're only going to go up. They can't, people aren't going to give us money and then pay us to take it. That's, we're not going to get to that. Oh. Can I show you something? Sure. Can you see it? Oh, yes. There's the debt clock. We're not quite to $29 trillion yet. Wow. Wow. And, uh, and then, wow. That's, that's, a, that's a little bracing. But then when you figure the implied debt of promissory debt of the United States government, right. like with Social Security and Medicare, uh, that could be upwards of $200 trillion. It could be $300. I've heard people quote $400 trillion of debt. I don't know about that. You know, I don't know about that. It seems like it was probably 10, maybe 15 years ago. I remember William Niskanen, the late William Niskanen, uh, Bill Niskanen, who was at Cato Institute, uh, had started trying to get people to wake up to this. Look, it looks like we're in a lot of debt. That's a tiny, tiny fraction of the real commitments that people have made. Because when you think of that 28, almost 29 trillion now in debt, and what was it when George Bush was president? Uh, was it six, eight? I think when he started, it may have been more like four. I, I'm trying to think, and I'm, I could be totally wrong, but I, I, I'm probably not far off, that it was like four or something when Clinton took office and it, it went to six or, you know, but those are the numbers we were talking about not very long ago. It's now almost 29 and, and literally growing by more than a trillion a year. Uh, and, and I say more than a trillion, more than a trillion before they started just throwing around trillions like it was paper money. And, uh, and, and yet that doesn't include any of the debt on Social Security. It doesn't include any of the commitments. What if all, all these pension funds? You know, that's probably who's, who's going to be screaming first. All these people who have been promised by politicians, these lavish pensions, and then they don't fund any of them. And so that's going to hit at some point. I mean, these are, are really serious issues. Almost no one is paying attention to them. Almost no one. In light of that, what do you think about the other two pieces you wrote? Are, are we going to be able to deal with them this, this week? Yes. Uh, and and, and uh, I will encourage uh, folks to, uh, because people, they don't have anything to do. Uh, no, I'm kidding. It's, I'm sure we're going very long here because we, we brought up a couple of things we didn't write about, but uh, the first one let's let's tackle is slaves to equality. That was Monday's piece, right? That was Monday's piece. And basically last week, uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee voted to extend draft registration to women so that if there is a draft, your daughter, along with your son, if they're a young person, would be drafted. It's it is it's silly on a lot of levels it's stupid on other levels and it's wrong throughout and it's wrong because forced service is not the way to go and i i know there are people out there that are, well the citizens have to stand up and fight for their country well they always have whether we've had a draft or not they always have 
No one suggested in World War II, boy, if we didn't have the draft, American people would have just sat at home. Eh, they bombed Pearl Harbor. Who cares? They used the draft to try to control the crowds trying to enlist. After Pearl Harbor, my father and all of his brothers signed to, to join, well, except for the one who had several children already, uh, signed to uh, join the uh, army. My uh, wife's uncle, Carl, who passed away a couple of years ago, passed away, uh, I think, the day after his wife died. Um, but he, he enlisted. He had to lie about his age, like so many other Americans, that not only did they enlist, they lied to enlist because they wanted to do the right thing. And, and some people, I think, oh, young people these days, Think for a second, control yourselves. Young people these days are like young people of all days. And I'm not saying that they have the exact political you know, views of this generation or that generation, but almost every young generation is liberal, thinks the government can do all kinds of things that it can't. And then they get a little older and they, and they figure out a lot of that. And to whatever degree, we'll have to wait and see. But in terms of defending this country, Every time, and I don't mean just 100 years ago or 50 or whatever, but after 9-11, you had an outpouring of people. I mean, you had a president who said, just go shopping, but you had Americans uh, like, what's his name, uh, Tilden? Is it, I'm going to get his name wrong. I can't believe. Uh, oh, I'm getting him confused with someone else in my head too. But the, the guy who was killed with friendly fire, unfortunately, in Afghanistan, but he was an NFL star. He's making a million, two million, eight million, whatever a year and quits to enlist after 9-11. And, and you had lots of other people. In fact, the, the truth is a lot of people try to enlist and, and the standards are too high. Um, and if you had a draft, you'd have a lot of people who didn't meet the standards that the government all of a sudden has to deal with. And of course, the reality is you're not just fighting the last war, you're fighting the war before the last war. And I think about it, and I think I may, I may write something about this as well, but I think about, you know, our, our largest adversary, our most serious adversary at this point is China, because they're likely to do things like invade Taiwan or, or take over the South China Sea and things that if you want a world of open and free navigation is just not going to work. And, and so are we going to somehow conscript enough people to compete manpower wise with China? You're not ever going to do it. It's 1.4 billion people. And, and because they're one child policy, they're almost all male. Uh, not, not quite, but, but they do have a, 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 a you know, a, a lopsided number of, of males. It's, and, and this has been true for decades. This is not a new thing. Warfare has been technologicized. How do you like that for a new word? It has become much more technological. You like that better? I do too. <clears throat> I tried. I went out on that limb and they chopped it. I chopped it right off. But anyway, um, we live in a different world and we're not going to solve everything by having a bunch of people in uniform. And what's really at work here, I think, is they don't need it for the all-volunteer force. It is people who like to dream up ways that they can remake the world from a, like a command structure, 
Like they're going to, and, and I think about, I have a 21 year old who's graduated from college a year early and is now going into a doctorate program. It's a six year program and so on. Well, you know, she's spoken for, she doesn't have a year to give. Now, if she thought that the world depended on her stopping what she's doing, and, and giving a year or two or whatever it took, I suspect she would do it. But this idea that you're just going to steal years from every young person as if they're not doing anything, you know what? They are doing stuff. And I, I, uh, I see so many young people, they're working, they're going to school, there and if you're you know used to be back in the day if you're working and going to school okay that's a full load well now to work to pay to go to school that's like seven full loads i mean i i have a ton of respect for the young people i see all around me who are working their butts off and the the thought that these sickening politicians would get in their way and screw up their lives or even delay it for one second um, I think of the movie Grand Torino and this gang is trying to, I can't think of the guy's name. It's on the tip of my tongue. Everything's on the tip of my tongue. Uh, but the, the, the uh, Hmong kid that, uh, that um, Clint Eastwood's character, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of together. Well, the Hmong gang, uh, that's H-M-O-N-G, um, they want this, this kid to do what they want. They want him in the gang. They're pretty much telling him he's got to get in the gang. And so Clint Eastwood gets in a fight with one of them and punches him in the mouth. You know how Clint, Clint is. And grabs him and says, I want to say his name is Try or something. But anyway, he says, he doesn't have one second for you. Not one second. And every time I think about any sort of national service or draft, I think my daughter doesn't have one second for you losers. Her life is not going to be derailed by your BS. And uh, it, it's just, and, and there's, you know, it, it's silly when I went to one hearing and we wrote a, I wrote a common sense about it. I went to a hearing where they were thinking of a theoretical situation in which we needed manpower. And the one they chose, because I think it was difficult to look anywhere in the world and say, oh, we need manpower here. Because then all of a sudden people are like, oh, what are you, are you talking about a real draft? Was that Mexico and Canada were going to invade and they couldn't find enough volunteers. And I'm thinking, this is the silliest scenario I've ever heard. First of all, Mexico and Canada are not going to invade. And second of all, I think there'd be plenty of volunteers. It's these folks are playing with other people's lives and they need to stop and we need to send them a message. And the good part about this script, Slaves to Equality, is at the end, I note Senators Rand Paul and Ron Wyden Republican and a Democrat and two House members. Uh, DeFazio is the is the uh, Democrat. And I want to say Gray 
or maybe it's Davis. It's not Gray Davis, I assure you. But uh, I think it actually is, it may be Rodney Davis. He's from Illinois, he's a Republican. Um, but they have co-sponsored legislation to just end draft registration, end draft registration for everybody. Don't extend it to women. That's just silly. It's silly for it to exist now. It does nothing. The former director of selective service said at the hearing that this is a meaningless counterproductive program, that it makes us think we're prepared when we are not. And he urged getting rid of it. And some people might say, Paul, what are we gonna do about preparedness? Well, let me give you a couple ideas. Why don't we offer to prepare people? Why don't we have a list that people can sign up who say, you know what? If you know what hits the fan, call me first. Why don't we have a, a call me first list and let people who care and who will literally be there sign up and get ready and know that they're going to be called. And maybe then you have that list and you say, oh, let's twice a year do some sort. Now, for the most part, some of that's probably silly because you have a professional, effective military there's only so much, you know, uh, training that would probably make sense to spend money on. One part of that might be to, to give free weapons training, teach people how to shoot a rifle or a pistol. Now, that would freak out much of Washington, but it would make our country safer. Because the last thing a crook wants, who's got a gun and is going to go rob someplace wants, is the other person to have a gun and to know how to use it. So um, there are all kinds of ways to get ready. And I'm all for them. Let's do it. Let's get ready. But don't rely on forcing people because one, those people might resist. I know that well. I spent five and a half months in, in prison when I was uh, 25 years old um, because I just wasn't going to sign up. And I was more than willing to go if we were attacked. I was more than willing to go to any just war, but I wasn't going to be just cannon fodder to go do something stupid. And most of what the U.S. government is, is talking overseas has been pretty stupid. We've been in Afghanistan for a long time in a completely no-win war. And I think anybody who had a kid over there had to wonder, what the heck are we doing there? But for all the politicians, the death counts were low. Sorry, you got your kid. Death counts were really low. Why not just kick the can down the road? I know we won't ever solve it, but it's not going to go bad on my watch. Oh, yeah, a few kids had to die. That's, that is the way our government works, not theoretically. That is the way it has worked for the last 20 and longer years. So um, this is, in, in some ways, it's a non-issue, except it continues to remind us that we have a lot of people with enough time on their hands to try to figure out how to hoodwink and force our kids to get off of their path of success and to be some you know, some cannon fodder and it not necessarily cannon fodder. Maybe it's a sweep the streets fodder. And, and the way these people talk about it is always, well, if we had this, well, then these young people could fight climate change and these young people could end poverty. And these, and it's like, 
do you know anything? These young people are trying to figure out things in life. They're trying to learn and gain the skills to do stuff. If the young people know everything about solving poverty, let's fire everybody at, at Health and Human Services and let the young people take over. I mean, but it's all fantasy. And when, when people with power are talking fantasy, and it includes my kids or your kids, we need to put a stop to it. I have a slightly different perspective, I guess. Uh, not much, but here, since I don't have any kids. Uh, so what you're saying is you're only slightly wrong. No. <laughs> <laughs> since I'm a few months older than you, uh, I also never had to register for the draft, which is, of course, one of the great amusing things about uh, life in the late 20th century. Uh, all those years, I never registered and didn't have to. I understand if you're, if you're supposed to register and they won't let you do a number of things, you're not going to get a Pell Grant, you're not going to get the student loan guarantees if you don't register, things like that. Uh, so I don't, I mean, I don't really know much about how that works. When I look at registration, I look at registering for the draft very much like I look at mask mandates and the impetus for uh, uh, mandatory vaccines in that I think people want to have masks work not because they want them to work but because they want to regiment society um, forcing people to wear masks gives some people not everybody but gives some people a real thrill it gives them that little stalin in the soul that allows them to behave like uh, tyrants and some people love that a lot and i think that some people support registration for the same reason it's purposeless you're right it doesn't do, do what it's supposed to do well i think that's pretty much how masks are but they do regiment people and they make people cohere to rules of a group. And I'm not that kind of person. I, I'm, I'm opposed to it. I think there is an element of that. Uh, um, at my trial, we presented evidence that the government had every bit of information they wanted from me. Every bit of information. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, of course. They just didn't have my signature. And my attorney said, why won't you sign? I said, when I sign something, I'm signing that I approve. If I sign a check, I'm saying that amount of money is there. My signature is not just a throwaway, and I'm not going to sign something I don't believe in. And the prosecutor said, the law says he must present himself and submit to registration. So the fact that we have all the information we're asking for doesn't matter. He has not subjected himself. He hasn't submitted to us. He hasn't said we really own his life. And of course, I was never going to. But the, the interesting thing today is that it's a lot different. Back in my day, uh, you were going to, oh, my little thing is messing up there, um, you were going to have to go down to the post office and register, or they might send you something in the mail if you didn't do it, and then you could sign the card. Uh, maybe you still had to go down. I can't, I can't recall. Nowadays, I'm told by the people running the program and these hearings and so on, 75% of the draft registrations, the registrant never signed anything, never wrote the information never had anything to do with it at all. They registered them 
automatically. They went and got a driver's license and they sent their information registration. The exact thing that, of course, I needed to go to prison because, uh, because that wasn't good enough. But now they're just registering everybody and they're creating this big list. And of course, they could always clamp down on people. But this is, this is uh, it's why I say this is wrong on so many different levels and it's silly. Uh, and it shows that the people in positions of power don't seem to, they don't seem to notice the difference between programs that really do something and programs that are completely ridiculous and just employ the people who run them. The selective service system, it's only $25 million a year. It is a waste of $25 million a year. But the people making a salary off of it wanted, wanted to keep going. And, uh, and that's, that speaks for a lot of Washington. Let's just quickly, uh, and I encourage you to come to thisiscommonsense.org, read Slaves to Equality. Uh, it's all about we have to make men and women equal. So if we, if we you know, hit some guy in the face, we have to hit some woman in the face. That's the, we, we need equal slavery. And that's the, the point of that. But there's a lot at thisiscommonsense.org uh, about the draft. If you go and put in the search engine uh, draft, you're going to find uh, a ton of information uh, and, and ways to learn a lot more about it. The, the last script we'll just deal with, and we won't have a whole lot of time, but we've dealt with this subject so much. It's called Death by Definition. And... You know, we've had a lot of Fauci versus Ron, uh, Ron, oh, I say Ron, Rand Paul. Uh, uh, they've kind of hooked up and fought each other at these different hearings. Every time it happens, it seems like new information falls out. And this last time, Rand Paul told uh, Dr. Fauci that it gave him an opportunity to retract his previous statements about there being no gain of function research in Wuhan, Wuhan, uh, and and has now made a referral to the Justice Department. Now, the Justice Department's political, and and uh, they're not going to do anything. But the truth is, the disagreement between Rand Paul and Dr. Fauci, Anthony is over the definition of what gain of function is. Now, Rand Paul, who Fauci says doesn't know anything, doesn't know what he's talking about. He says that when you take a virus and you juice it up in a lab and you create a virus that before only affected animals, didn't have any ability to jump to humans, and you punch it up with all kinds of you know, science, science, big science. And, uh, and, and I could get more technical, but that's basically what you're doing. And you create a new virus that can transmit to humans that gains the function of transmissibility to humans. That is, surprise, surprise, gain of function research. Not so, no. No, when you do things that allow viruses to gain functions and maybe create a pandemic and kill four or five million people, that's not gain of function research, <clears throat> not according to the experts. Up and down, the, 
The experts, the knowledgeable doctors have written a new definition. I don't know how long they spend in law school going, wait a second, we're going to get to the human body. But first, here's how to write a definition that in Congress will help you or, you know, going through the bureaucracy. This argument and this constant, you don't know what you're talking about. <clears throat> that's not what happened at the Wuhan lab boils down. And I'm going to, I'm going to forget the word because when you told me the word, I went and looked it up and then, and it's funny the way it's pronounced. What is it? Uh, Logamachi or whatever. What's the. Logamachi. Logamachi. Um, you know, once you told me I could type it really well, but I still can't say it. But, uh, you know, I'm going to grow up soon. I'll be able to. But this is all about a definition. And the definition that is being used by officials in our big science uh, monopoly, big government science branch, is somehow this weird definition that doesn't cover a lot of gain of function research. So when Rand Paul has been saying there was gain-of-function research going on, gain-of-function research that could have, because it did in other cases, that they have written about in scientific papers where they thanked NIH for the grant money to do the paper, where they have talked about it gaining fun function so it can transmit to humans. We did that in the lab. We used U.S. money to do that in the lab. But that's not gain of function. Well, it is. And it also can create a pandemic. Now, Rand Paul, now, uh, Fauci acted at this hearing like, well, you're accusing us of killing millions of people and so on. And Rand Paul did not back off. He didn't say that he never, because he never did accuse them of that. He said, we don't know. We don't know. In other words, he didn't let off. The, I'm not saying that. Because the truth is, it could have come from that. And, and Fauci's actions could have played a big role in this pandemic that killed millions of people. Now, back off for just a second. He wasn't trying to kill millions of people. We don't have evidence that he killed millions of people. And if it turns out that, he, that what he has funded did through step two and three and four end up being released in a lab, it doesn't mean that Fauci is a murderer. I don't like, I didn't like people pretending or saying, and maybe they believe that was true, that the blood of all these Americans is on Donald Trump's hands. It's not true that it's on Joe Biden's hands. I mean, people can make mistakes. And if they make purposeful mistakes or negligent mistakes, then you hold them accountable. But this idea that we're just going to throw around that, you know, everybody has blood on their hands, everyone's a murderer. That's not, as much as Fauci tried to use that as a, you're making wild accusations, that's not what Rand Paul was saying. And he made it clear, but he also didn't back off by saying it could have. Let's find out. And, if, and people can love Fauci, but it's obvious that he went along and was part of a whole, his emails show it. There's no smoking gun where he said, yeah, we're lying to everybody. But it's clear that right off the bat, he was being contacted by people who said, hey, this virus looks like it could be, could have come from a lab. 
And he was talking to people who then did a paper about how, no, 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 it came from the zoonotic uh, animal transmission. And was it Fauci who ran out in front of TV cameras and said, oh, no, 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 no. This WHO, joint WHO China investigation is a bunch of baloney. They haven't investigated anything. We have to look at the lab leak. No, he was pushed. He didn't say boo. Now, why did I know that this investigation, I'm not a doctor. I'm not the head of, of a major you know, part of the government health apparatus. I knew it was complete BS. I read it right in the paper. I knew that they weren't, they weren't actually doing the investigation. I read what they did at the lab. They got walked around like tourists and then given a speech, listening to a speech by some, somebody that the Chinese Communist Party put up doesn't strike me as an investigation. And, and yet, Fauci didn't say anything about that. It wasn't until the last time before this, before the cameras and Rand Paul beating him up verbally, um, that he kind of said, well, I'm for a, 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 an investigation. It wasn't until it already broke. Why is he always behind on this lab leak? And I still, I complain all the time I read in the papers about this joint who China thing. And it's, they see, they found that it was extremely unlikely. And then maybe later in the next paragraph or two, there's some admission that although uh, the head Tedros, uh, you know, the head of the, of the World Health Organization did say that there needs to be more study or whatever. Never do they come out and make it clear that there was no investigation, none, not a little bit, not a flawed investigation, not an investigation that got stopped after two seconds. There was never any investigation of that lab whatsoever, none. And once you realize that, and then have to listen to Fauci talking about, well, I'm open to a, we need to investigate more, but then giving lip service to this stupid joint investigation. And you see in the New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever paper you might be reading, you read about this investigation, but it wasn't for sure that it, some people think there still needs to be more. There has been none. All the investigation has been outside of China. There has been none inside. In fact, the Chinese government has destroyed all kinds of, of information, all kinds of evidence. There were all these, um, I'm gonna get the name wrong, but there were all these different uh, uh, files on different uh, sequences of, of the virus and different things. They're gone. Chinese took them offline. Oh, those, those were, there was some problem with them. They're never going back online. And then, of course, this last week, the WHO comes out and says, we're asking China to be open and, and let us investigate. And China laughs in their face. No, the answer was no. So it's, and, and the other thing that I noticed, because I'm very fixated, because I think China's a threat, and I think we, I think, we, not just my kids, but me, may live in a world soon where we have World War III or where we have a much diminished globe because of what China is doing. I'm very, very concerned. 
And so I have been watching this from day one. I've never suggested that this is a bioweapon that China produced. But I wonder, and I especially wonder because in Josh Rogan's column, and we did a footnote in this piece. This piece is uh, death by definition. And I encourage you to, to go to thisiscommonsense.org and read it and, and hit some of the links. Uh, because you need to hear this whole testimony. Don't let, don't go by what I said in 250 words. Listen to the whole thing. Um, but, but uh, now I'm going to lose my train of thought as to where I was going with that. Well, the footnote, you have the footnote you're going to talk oh, about? Yes. The, this footnote uh, uh, is part of, of Josh Rogan's column that I just thought was important for people to realize. He says that the Trump administration made a pronouncement late in their administration that some of the money that they sent to the Wuhan lab was used to build a separate part of the lab run by the Chinese military. Now, if the Chinese military is dealing with coronavirus stuff, then all of a sudden bioweapon is not such a crazy thought. And, and don't get me wrong, I suspect that there are some labs in the United States where they're doing some of these things. And we, we haven't released any bioweapons on anybody. Um, so I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that, oh, well, we pretty much know that China, I'm just saying we do know, here's what we do know. We do know that they were doing gain of function research by any reasonable definition of gain of function. We do know that you and I as taxpayers were footing the bill for that. And we do know, because not only the Trump administration, but the Biden administration has confirmed large parts of this, that they were also using our money to build part of a lab for the Chinese military. I'm not interested in helping the Chinese military put Uyghurs into concentration camps or steal all the rights that Hong Kongers have had for a long time or invade Taiwan or go across the Himalayas and kill more Indian soldiers or sink boats in the, you know, in other words, the Chinese military is not one of my favorite organizations. And, and so we know some of these things, but I, I think, why has there been no other big story in the Washington Post about looking into, is this really true? They really did use our money to build a, a Chinese military coronavirus lab. Um, so, we need to know a lot more on this, but what we already know is we have people in high places who have gone out of their way not to let us know the truth. And that's always an indication that we need to double down and find out a lot more. And we're gonna to continue to talk about this. We, we printed something uh, uh, last June when this first came out and there was some talk about it and it was all poo-pooed. And we have followed it since then, just because the way it was all poo-pooed <clears throat> didn't make good sense. And, uh, and we're continuing to follow it. And, and you know, you, you see this again and again where, you know, reading between the lines, this doesn't make sense. And we as people have to unfortunately read between the lines and we have to not let these things go. Because what we're finding out about this Wuhan lab is damning about China, but you know what? It's also damning about our own government. And I think the American people 
and the Chinese people, we've got a lot in common. And sadly, so do our governments. Um, I think the Chinese government's a lot worse. They don't have a, they don't have a Bill of Rights. Um, and they've never had participatory democracy and, and a citizenry that believes in that, that's ingrained in that. But sometimes I look at the way our government wants to function. And I think it, it reminds me a lot of the way the Chinese government is able to function. Well, on that note, I think we've concluded the last week of July, 2021.